From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The last time Congressman Ed Perlmutter was on, he hesitated at first to say he was running again. Well, we're working on uh, putting the campaign together. How's that? Uh, I'll take a yes or a no. Okay, how about uh, we're putting the campaign together? Eventually, he said, sure. That was in November. We now know he's not running again. So what changed? Pearl Mutter's back to reflect on his eight terms. Then our politics team synthesizes a busy week from the opening gavel to the state of the state. And later, learning your home was spared by a wildfire is a mix of relief and anguish. From my front door, that's my new view of the neighborhood across the street that's leveled. A Louisville resident gives us a tour after the Marshall Fire. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR a part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's a familiar story now in the pandemic and in politics. People leaving their jobs in search of something new. Longtime Democratic Congressman Ed Perlmutter is among them. He represents Denver's northern suburbs, and he announced this week he won't seek re-election. Something different from what he told us the last time he was on the show in November, and we're going to talk about his departure as well as policy. And welcome back, Congressman. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Uh, good to be on your show. In November, did you know deep down inside that you didn't want a ninth term? I knew that I'd been thinking about it. I hadn't uh, made a final decision. Uh, you asked me and I kind of uh, hemmed and hawed and danced around it. And I apologize to you and to your listeners for that. But in this business, you're running until you're not. And right after Christmas, I made the decision that uh, it's time uh, for me to look for something new and it's time to have new folks represent the uh, 7th Congressional District. So, uh, I again, I apologize to you for not giving you a straight answer, uh, but I hadn't made up my mind at that point. Hmm. And, um, you know, that's the bottom line. I, uh, I look forward to doing something else in the 7th CD, uh, which is a really pretty new contours of, of the district, uh, we'll have a new representative. Yes, because of redistricting, a new shape to many of the districts in Colorado. Um, you're kind to apologize. Uh, you've said in other interviews this week that you wanted to leave Congress while you still liked your colleagues and while they still liked you. Uh, I'm curious, though, if the insurrection, the storming of your workplace at all played a role in this decision. Well, certainly. I mean, a lot of things have played a role. And when I say, you know, my dad had a saying, uh, leave them laughing and, you know, don't wear out your welcome. Don't tell one joke too many. And, uh, you know, I was talking about both my colleagues and the people of the seventh who've been very kind to me. You know, Colorado has been very 
kind in the United States of America to the Perlmutter family. And uh, the people of this district have given me the honor uh, to represent them in Washington. And I have just tremendous friendships, Democrats and Republicans in the House of Representatives. But, you know, to your point, yeah, the, the mob scene uh, on January 6th, you know, certainly didn't uh, warm my heart. But I mean, what did was it was like a terrible day with the uh, the riot. And then but it was a great day because we picked ourselves up and finished certifying the election of Joe Biden as president and that Donald Trump lost, which he lost. So it was a good it was a terrible day and a great day all at the same time. But it's it's a, a combination of things uh, for me to choose to do something new. I've been doing this for a long time. When you take my service in the state Senate and you add it to the service I've now had uh, as uh, a member of Congress. That's right. You were at the state house before you were at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, because of the new boundaries, your 7th district is likely to be less of a shoe-in for Democrats. Do you risk a Republican victory by removing an incumbent's natural advantage? You always risk uh, a Republican victory. And, you know, every election, the people get to to make their decision as to whether they want to retain somebody or pick somebody new. Um, you know, for me, this district starts out better than the seventh started out uh, back in the early 2000s. It's better than the district started out in 2012 in terms of de-leaning district. But whoever uh, follows me, you know, is going to have to prove themselves and uh, the voters will make a choice. Just like uh, every two years, a member of Congress makes a choice whether they're going to run or not. The people get a choice whether they're going to rehire them or not. Are you ready to endorse anybody? No, I mean, we okay. got a great bench. Uh, Brittany Pedersen has gotten off to a good start. Uh, there are others who are close friends of mine. Uh, Leslie Dahlkamper, who's a commissioner here in Jeffco. Um, I think Brianna Titone is looking at it. Some others maybe. And, you know, I want to give them a little space, but I can tell you, I think Brittany's gotten off to a pretty good start. Did fears of being in the minority drive this decision at all? I, I don't no. want to say that that's a fait accompli, but it's, you know, a possibility. No, uh, it didn't. Uh, you know, I've been in the minority. Heck, I've been, I was, uh, I like the majority a lot more than the minority. No question about that. But that didn't uh, really have an impact on my decision. Um, you know, in the, in the state Senate, I served in the minority for six years. And then we won the state Senate in 2000. Uh, which we hadn't held the state Senate since John Kennedy had been president. So I served two years in the majority. This time in the in the Congress, I've been in the minority eight years, and I will have been in the majority eight years. Mm. And so serving in the minority, you can do other things. I was uh, pretty successful serving in the minority because, you know, my style is to, I like people. And uh, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, unaffiliated, I just like people. And that has been uh, held me in good stead. And I've been able to get things done regardless of who was in the majority, who was in the minority. In a few moments, I'll ask about 
a top achievement in that time, but I would like to get to some more immediate policy. If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and Democratic Congressman Ed Perlmutter joins us. He's decided not to seek re-election after many years in the Congress. Uh, Okay, so you've co-signed a letter to the Justice Department. In it, you ask for an investigation into law enforcement's handling of the gunman in December's Denver-Lakewood shooting spree, according just a few lines from this letter. In the days following, multiple news outlets reported the gunman foreshadowed his plan in a series of books. It was also reported that he was on the radar of federal law enforcement, The letter goes on. Additionally, the Denver Police Department investigated him. Uh, You've co-signed this with other Democratic members of the congressional delegation from Colorado. What do you hope might come of this? Well, a couple things uh, we hope will come of it. First, we've determined, and I've had conversations with Homeland Security, with our State Department of Public Safety, with Michael Hancock and, and Adam Paul in Lakewood, as well as the FBI, we don't want to have gaps uh, where one agency isn't sharing information with another law enforcement agency uh, so that, you know, dangerous people, we keep an eye on them. And this one had, this guy has specific targets. So there were some personal vendettas that it seemed to, you know, spring from his writing and however his life was. And then he had a lot of ideological uh, rants, uh, a lot against women, uh, kind of a white supremacist uh, uh, tinge to the whole thing. And nationally, we've had a number of instances now, starting in Orlando with the Pulse nightclub, Hmm. where for one reason or other, um, we've missed it, even though there were signs. And I think as a national matter, not really looking just at Denver uh, exclusively, but nationally, we need to have better information sharing, make sure that the agencies aren't in silos. And if somebody's on the radar screen, you know, have a reason why he drops off the radar screen. And that's what happened here. Let's discuss a nut you haven't been able to crack, and that's giving marijuana businesses that operate legally under state law access to financial services, which are often federally regulated. Uh, That has passed the House repeatedly, kind of marijuana banking, the shorthand. It's been blocked by the Senate. Uh, Currently, it turns out by Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a member of your own Democratic Party. In brief, what's going on there? Well... You know, I that one still has me pretty uh, irritated. Um, I think in this instance, so when the Republicans, we passed it with big bipartisan votes in the House, and the purpose is a public safety purpose. So much cash is generated in this business. It attracts robberies. We've had a murder here, Colorado. There have been murders across the country just because there's so darn much cash, and they these businesses need to have banking services. So we passed it when the Republicans were in charge of the Senate. And when it went over there to the Senate, they said, basically, the bill's too big and too broad. Then we pass it. The Democrats are in charge. All of a sudden, it becomes uh, too narrow and too limited. And so it wasn't big enough uh, for Chuck Schumer. I I have not given up on that one, Ryan. I'm going to get that darn thing passed this year. 
you know, while I still uh, serve out my term. Do you have the sense that if it passed both chambers, you'd have a president who'd sign it? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, the Treasury Secretary Yellen uh, is somebody who has uh, been talking to me about this for years. Mm. And so I feel very good that uh, it would pass. You know, we're at 47 states have some level of marijuana use, uh, all the territories in the District of Columbia, and they need to have legitimate banking services. It's just a no-brainer, in my opinion. And yeah, I'm a little bit uh, uh, irritated, but we're going to keep working on it and get it passed this year. It's a peeved pearl mutter you're hearing on the show today. <laughs> what are you proudest of in your time as a member of Congress? Oh, boy. Uh, I, most, I'm proudest of the office, my office, the, my staff. Um, and I'm going to get a little emotional, so I apologize. But I have, in my opinion, uh, the best staff in America uh, who have served the people of, of uh, this district in Colorado at a level that I just, I don't think can be surpassed. And I know some others will quarrel with me about that, but from my chief of staff on down to the interns, uh, they've been just so competent, so trustworthy, uh, so hardworking. Uh, I think that's one legacy I'm just proud of. I'm, I'm proud of a legacy of people that have worked directly for me, not just people I've helped within the party, but uh, people who've worked directly for me have chosen to go into public service, hmm. uh, you know, starting with, say, Alec Garnett, who's the Speaker of the House. I think that's another legacy. And I've got seven or eight that have gone in, been in, you know, elected officials. In terms of projects, I think uh, the expansion and growth of the National Renewable Energy Lab, uh, the building of um, the VA hospital, uh, those are two big accomplishments, uh, continuing to build the aerospace industry here in Colorado. Get, and then, you know, then I've got specific personal stories, uh, one of which you guys covered quite extensively a number of years ago when I helped to get the Iwo Jima vets uh, over to Iwo Jima when their charter had been canceled. And we worked with the Marines and the Japanese embassy and the White House. Uh, you know, I have uh, so many of those kinds of stories, individual stories, like when we got the bodies back of three young men who went, couldn't fight with our own army, but they went to fight with the Kurds against ISIS and got killed in Syria. And it was a diplomatic nightmare to get their bodies back. But we did that. So, you know, individually, there are a whole bunch of stories. But I think my proudest piece is that I just have been working with the best people in America. Before we go, uh, I'll note that for a short time in, what was it, 2018, you ran for governor, then withdrew from that race. Do you have any gubernatorial hopes? No. I, just, I you know, actually, uh, these last four years in the Congress have been great. I've been proud of Jared Polis and the service he's provided to our state in very difficult circumstances, whether it's COVID or shootings or wildfires. Uh, those kinds of things. So I, you know, I, uh, I'm i going to give myself a pat on the back for stepping back. And, uh, you know, Jared, I personally, he's a good friend of mine. We've been buddies for a long time and he's doing a heck of a job. Well, that turned into a reelection endorsement for someone else. Uh, Congressman, thank <laughs> you. Thank you so much for your time uh, and your your 
self-awareness and kindness. I appreciate it. Well, Ryan, thank you. And thanks for uh, having me on the show. Congressman Ed Perlmutter represents Colorado's 7th Congressional District. He will not seek a ninth term. Our public affairs editor likes to call the week we're wrapping up Political Spirit Week, or sometimes Political Heck Week. That's because it's both when the legislature starts its work and the governor gives his annual address, making it indeed a very busy week in state politics. Here to catch us up on everything are our state capitol reporters, Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny. Welcome to you both. Hi, Ryan. Hello. Let's start with the governor's speech. Uh, Benta, you were there. What was his main focus? Well, we heard a lot about what he sees as his past accomplishments during his first three years as governor and some of his successes working across the aisle. We didn't hear a lot of details about new policies he wants to support this session. He is now indeed in an election year, no doubt making the case for re-election. He did also talk a lot, a lot about saving people money. So my new version of Paul Simon's lyrics goes a little something like this. Just cut the tax, Max. You lower the rate, Nate. You don't need to pay more, Thor. Just send your kids for free. In our live coverage, I mistakenly said that that was Simon and Garfunkel, and it's just Paul Simon, so my apologies. Andy, what were the specifics, though, in terms of how he wants to save people money? Well, there was actually one more part of that. It was send your kids for free, and then he said in parenthetical, to kindergarten or to preschool, talking about uh, Democrats' expansion of education. But... You know, this was part of an extended thing for him talking about saving you money in different ways. And it feeds into the fact that Democrats and Republicans are looking at inflation, the rising costs for groceries and housing, things like that. And both parties are actually putting it front and center in 2022. The governor is taking this a few ways. Polis argued that Democrats have already been saving you money by uh, reforming health care or, like I just said, enacting universal pre-K kindergarten. Mm -hmm. That's a message that he's carried in the past. But what made this year's speech different, Ryan, is that he's also talking a lot about reducing fees for individuals and businesses using uh, some of the billions in federal funds that lawmakers have access to to just reduce the different ways the government costs you money, including by delaying a two cent gas fee that Democrats themselves had just created last year. The idea is that there's just been such an infusion of federal money that it could backfill some areas. Benta, you got to talk to Republican lawmakers after the speech. What did they make of this emphasis on saving people money? A lot of them actually said they agree with that message. You know, overall, they, they support that, but they said they feel like Polis is being disingenuous and that it's very political. Here's Republican Representative Colin Larson. It's comical to watch him try to run as a moderate Republican now and hide from the record that he's built up over three years. You know, we'll see if he puts any of these things into actual action, but I'm pretty skeptical. What about COVID? Uh, Andy, did the governor say much about the pandemic? Yeah, you know, of course he talked about it, but it was different from last year. Last year's speech was very much uh, just as vaccines were coming out, and he talked about it much more last year as this kind of acute crisis that we were facing. This year, he honored those who had died alongside victims of other tragedies, and he much more talked about living with COVID going forward, dealing with the curveballs it throws us. 
And so instead of talking much about, like, say, a new vaccination campaign or anything like that, he basically talked about long-term strategies briefly to um, to shore up hospitals and help us live with the virus. Putting this pandemic behind us means learning to live with the curveballs that COVID-19 may throw. But in order to do that, we need our hospitals to maintain capacity and ensure Coloradans get the care they need when they need it. One new policy related to COVID that the governor did mention was that he wants to embark on a three-year effort to, quote, stabilize the healthcare workforce and to also get more people into medical professions. A- after the speech, he talked to reporters in his office and someone asked him for more details about what he would do to stabilize the healthcare workforce. And the governor didn't offer anything and Polis said he would have more information in the next few weeks. Another area he spent some time on is public safety and what his administration can do about the rising crime rate. Let's hear just a bit of that. You know, I've never been one to shy away from ambitious goals, which is why I want to spend the next five years making Colorado one of the top 10 safest states in the country. Let's make it so. What's going to be his approach there, Bento? Polis and other Democrats are are really emphasizing that they want to address what they see as the root causes of crime, homelessness, behavioral health, recidivism, and trying to help, you know, prevent people from going to jail or prison in the first place. The governor did sickle out fentanyl and said his administration will push to strengthen punishments for people who sell that drug in particular. And here's how he talked about it at a press conference after his speech. One can call them drug dealers, but I call them death dealers because it's a whole different category if you're selling cocaine or meth, which kill people slowly, versus fentanyl, which kill people quickly, predictably, and instantly. Uh, The death dealers uh, need to be punished, and we have to show that we don't tolerate that here in Colorado. The death dealers. Andy, traditionally Republicans have worn the tough-on-crime hat. Uh, What do they think of Polis making this a focus? Well, what's interesting is that this comes after a year in which Republicans and Democrats actually worked together rather quickly on uh, police reforms. And so Senate Minority Chris Leader, uh, excuse me, Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert gave an interesting speech this week where he took some credit for that collaboration on police reform, but then tried to push the pendulum back in the other direction. In 2019, many of us worked together to advance police reform in this state. Thank you. We stood for ending chokeholds. We stood for body cameras. And we worked to get bad officers off the street. But now we ask that you join us in ensuring that our families are safe in their communities. So in that, you again hear the two parties kind of jousting for the same policy position. No, we're going to be the party of public safety. No, we're going to be the party of stopping inflation. Mm. Um, Holbert kind of generally cast some blame in that speech on Democrats saying that they were creating a culture that was driving cops out of law enforcement by villainizing them and, quote, letting criminals back on the street through stuff like personal recognizance bonds. You will see a lot of pushback from Democrats on that. Um, But, you know, we'll see that play out over the session ahead. The session ahead. Glad you mentioned that. Let's turn indeed to the legislature with our politics team. Uh, Lawmakers have started their four months of work. 
Uh, how much do you think this agenda polis laid out, to the extent that it was specific, uh, will shape what they do, Benta? I think it will shape things a lot, especially because Democrats hold the majority in both the House and the Senate. And the Democrats I talked to after the speech said they feel very aligned with Governor Polis and his general priorities for the coming months. But uh, caveat, we have 100 lawmakers. They can introduce their own bills. A lot of them are Democrats. So we are bound to see some differences. And already we're seeing daylight around this public safety issue. You've got Democratic lawmakers who've made criminal justice a huge priority. They still have things they want to achieve here. And they're worried about the party, about other Democrats doing a U-turn and abandoning these priorities. Hmm. Here's Democratic Representative Jennifer Bacon. And whenever people say get tough on crime, don't get me started on broken windows policies and zero tolerance and who that typically impacts. Because the problem that we have throughout all of this is to keep people from when they close their eyes, seeing a black and brown person as a criminal. And Bacon told me she doesn't think the fact that crime is going up now should be tied to recent reforms that have passed. She does think Republicans are trying to tie those two together. So that is an area where we could see some Democratic division. Andy, uh, what else will you have your eyes on for this session? I'm so curious about how they're going to talk about affordable housing. It's something where the two parties have really, really come into an alignment in saying that we have a serious housing issue in this state. And they've already largely agreed that they're going to put a lot of that federal money into it, uh, into existing programs that loan out money for housing development. But something I also heard was, uh, you know, again, Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert, a Republican, pushing the idea that Colorado needs to find a way to build a lot more houses. Here's Holbert again. The median home price in our state has grown 53 percent since 2016, yet there is a movement from some on the left to cease the building of new homes in our communities. That's interesting because he's talking about the problem of supply and demand, fixing the supply. That's something where a lot of progressives would actually agree with him, finding ways to build more housing. But what I'm curious about is, does that mean we'll see any real bipartisan effort to encourage more density or to ramp up the housing construction industry? Mm. Or will it be more so focused on older topics like, you know, how to deal with rent increases and more regulatory approaches? Benta, as I mentioned at the outset, you've been in the Capitol this week. What's the mood like? It's not quite the, well, it's not always jovial, but it's not as jovial as the start of, of last session. <laughs> Even though last year we were still in the middle of the pandemic, we just had an election. So there were a lot of first-time lawmakers excited to be there. And this year, people already seem pretty worn down. Although lawmakers did tell me they're glad to be at the Capitol in person. They're ready to get to work. They do have a lot to do. Uh, but Republican Representative Tim Geithner, he told me that the people he's talked to just casually around the building, they said, he said they they have this little bit of a sense of dread, not knowing how the session will go. We have all these competing personalities, agendas, priorities, and not knowing what could happen in the next four months outside of their control that could really impact things. I think a lot of us can identify with that sense of not knowing what's coming next. Of course, we do know that an election is coming next. That's no doubt going to influence politics under the dome. And just as there has been redistricting of congressional districts, reapportionment has changed the lines for state house and state Senate districts. Thanks to both of you for being with us. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. We heard from CPR public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland talking about the state of the state, the start of session as well. 
Governor Polis is scheduled to be on this program live Tuesday, by the way. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with a woman who's wrestling with a panoply of emotions. Her house was spared in the Marshall Fire, while many of her neighbors weren't. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News in KRCC. CPR is proud to sponsor Young Ameritown, an educational program for fourth through sixth grade students with immersive lessons in business, economics, and real world skills like money management and working at a radio station. Find out more about this program and others at yacenter.org. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There's an odd mix of relief and bewilderment when someone's house is left standing while so many others around it are destroyed. That's the predicament Jennifer Harrison is in. She lives in Louisville, near the Coal Creek Golf Course, and her home was indeed spared in the Marshall Fire. The other day, Harrison hopped in the car for a ride through her neighborhood with CPR's Miguel Otarola. So I have my pass. Do you mind holding this? Yeah, that's that okay. Mm-hmm. Can you sort of talk into it? Testing. I'm a resident of... Uh, the city of Louisville. I've lived here since 2003, and it's been the best community I've ever had in my entire life. Great. And where are we going to go? We're going to go down and see Cole Creek Ranch, which is just down here east on Dillon Road. So where were you when the fire was happening? So I was not in town. Uh, I was gone for the holidays, and there were gusts over 100 miles per hour. They were hurricane-force winds. And even though ground zero for this fire was miles west of my house, it created like a giant blowtorch. There aren't that many trees in this area. This is sort of a, it's considered a high desert ecosystem. And the tree, it's almost as if the homes were the fuel more than, than nature. See an officer? Yeah, and we'll just show them our pass to get in. Um, so take a right, and then if you want to slow down here, um, apparently the tree on the left was on fire, and my house is there on the left, and it's completely fine, other than the smoke damage. From my front door, that's my new view of the neighborhood across the street that's leveled. Is that where homes were in that area, or is it kind of like a park? No, there, there were hundreds of homes there. Yeah, almost every home on that side of the street is gone. Um, And if you keep going, I can show you some more impact in our neighborhood. So, yeah, this there used to be, uh, let me think, five homes right there. And they're not there anymore. This family, I believe they're returning back to their home state. I saw them sifting for things day before yesterday, trying to find any memento. These houses are made of the same material that your house is made out of? Yes. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, and there's an HOA, so there are rules about how to build these homes. And my hope is that there will be an opportunity to take a look at that and to see if, given what's going on in our, in our world with the severe drought if we should change some things. Are these hills normally just kind of blank or do they usually have anything on them? 
that's just open space, and there, I think there's cattle that are usually grazing there. Given that you're so close here to the open space, did you ever think that there would ever be a danger like that, like a fire danger like that? No, I didn't. I didn't really think that my house would be a target for a wildfire. This doesn't seem like the the normal normal setting for wildfires, but it's a new normal. I think the world's in a very different place, and I think it's scary. I don't know what that means for the future, but it's definitely very concerning. Uh, do you do you mind if we circle back towards where you were? That's fine. Mm-hmm. So I've been here coming over every day just to deal with the utilities and getting them reconnected and to you know, how people assess the damage. And so it's just one day at a time. All you can really do is kind of go one day at a time. Initially, I walked in and thought, oh, everything's great. My house is here. I'm so happy. And, and believe me, I'm, I'm so very grateful that it's here. I have some guilt that my house is standing while four doors away or across the street, there's tremendous damage and houses leveled. What do you feel you can do with that sort of emotion? So I think one of the biggest struggles is I want to help other people who are hurting and don't have a a place to go. And I've been told this is a marathon and, you know, it sounds like I may get that opportunity, you know, in time. A ride along with Jennifer Harrison of Louisville, whose home was spared in the Marshall Fire, CPR climate and environment reporter Miguel Otarula did the driving. Harrison says she's staying at a friend's because of smoke and water damage. We know restaurants have struggled in the pandemic. Now a Colorado Springs institution joins those that couldn't outlast the upheaval. El Taco Rey downtown announced its closure on Facebook Thursday afternoon, thanking customers for 45 years. Customers like our former producer, Alexandra McMahon, who introduced me to the family-run restaurant two years ago, just before the pandemic restrictions took effect. My mom used to buy their tamales in bulk because they're that good. And it was always an event because we lived on the north side of town in Briargate. So it was a bit of a drive to come downtown and get El Taco Rey. But it was always so worth it. But at that time, Alexandra didn't know the story of the owners. And so after the lunch rush, three o'clock, we stopped by, except it was still packed. We want to reshare that visit with you now. Listening back two years into the pandemic, it's a haunting example of how times have changed. Everywhere we went, my dad always had a jalapeno in his pocket. Because if we stopped for a burger or something, he wanted to always have chili on his food. And now my dad has passed. I find myself doing the very same thing as carrying a fresh jalapeno with me. Judy Allen runs El Taco Rey with her sisters. Their parents, Eddie and Rosemary Aguilar, started the business in 1976. Eddie died a few years ago, but Rosemary is still involved. The restaurant is narrow, like a shotgun house. Judy and I sardined into a space between the cash register and the kitchen. Tell me, are these family recipes? Family recipes. If you come to our house, this is how we do it. This is our take. What year were you born? 1970. So this has been really most of your life? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. How soon did they put you to work? 
Oh, we've been working since we were real little. None of us ever got in trouble because we were always working. <laughs> you couldn't get in trouble. No, we didn't have time to get in trouble. What's the best thing on the menu? Oh, my God. Everything is, whatever you get is going to be awesome. But my favorite thing is probably the tamales or the enchiladas. Tell me about the tamales. Our tamales, my mom has been making these tamales since we were little kids. She started doing it at the church. They're just pork tamales with red chili. They made by hand, and they're the best you'll ever find. What does a tamale mean to you? Love. It's home. It's just comfort. Tell me about your parents. I know your father passed recently. Yes, he passed away two years ago. And my mom and dad are, of course, the best parents anybody could ever have. Our dad was from the San Luis Valley. Our mom is from Gardner. On the walls in the dining room, lots of family photographs, including images of your dad. Mm-hmm. How do you feel when you walk by those? Oh, my God. My dad was the, the bravest man ever. Bravest? Bravest. What makes you say that? Because for him, he only had a third grade education. And for him to open up a restaurant, he was a hard worker and a go-getter. Successful. I'm just so proud of him. He's What a legacy he's left us. So how many members of the family are still involved? Let's see, um, about seven. Wow. Then we have employees on top of that. And is your mom still involved? Does she still give you thoughts about how to run the business? Oh, absolutely. It's hers. <laughs> this is her baby still, you know? Yes. And, you know, she still is still the owner, so we still have to run things through her, and which is, is right. Now, I heard there was some family intrigue a while back when your brother opened another restaurant. Uh-huh. What's this story? He just... This is Danny. Yeah, my brother Danny. Yes. He just opened up his own restaurant. That's all. There's nothing to tell. There's nothing to tell? Uh-huh. Your parents were okay with it? Yeah, they were happy for him. Yes, absolutely. Tell me about his place. His restaurant is is a little bit different from ours. Uh, we're better. <laughs> <laughs> that got laughter what? all over the kitchen. I'll tell you what, though. You know, there's business for everybody. One thing that our producer, Alexandra McMahon, noticed about your restaurant, and has always noticed, is it can feel exclusive. You're not open on the weekends. Right. The dining room is small. You, you've you never doubled, tripled, quadrupled in size. Right. Is there a certain exclusivity that you create that way? Or is that just the reality of a family business, too? Well, we've been here a long time. So, you know, we have a, a huge clientele. But not only that, you know, we're Christians. So we want to put God in our lives on Sunday. So what's another reason why we're closed on Sunday? Because we'd go to church on that day. You know, and family is important for us. So on Saturdays, that's family time for us to be with our families and do things with either our church or whatever we want to do. A lot of the awards on the wall Uh are local awards. Right. There's one. It's a national award from a little newspaper called USA Today. What did they give it to you for? It was for the best pork green chili in the whole state of Colorado. Which is an honor. That's saying something. It is, yes, absolutely. Tell me about the place that pork green chili has, not just at the restaurant but in families and culture. We had it for breakfast. We would smother our mashed potatoes with it, you know, instead of gravy. That was just our staple in our home. It's everything. Have you ever heard the saying, comida sin chile no es comida? Food without chili isn't food? That's right. Okay, I have it. I heard it today. Yes. Do you have a strong feeling about the Hatch versus Pueblo chili debate? Yes, I do. Are you willing to go on the record about it? Yes, absolutely. Pueblo chili all the way. You're a Colorado gal. <laughs> yes. It's that simple. Hatch is good too, but Pueblo's just got it. Is that what you use here? 
we use Hatch here. <gasps> and the reason being is because we've been using the same company for years and years and years. And back then, we couldn't. There weren't companies who who you can get it from. Much you know. less widely distributed right. the Pueblo Chili. Absolutely. So now you know we've been with this company for years, so we stay with it. But preference for me is Pueblo Chili. Are you surprised sometimes that you stayed in the restaurant business? I mean, I think it's so often that kids go, I'm not doing what mom and dad did. You know, people ask us that all the time. We didn't have the opportunity like there is today for college and all that. You know, we're not we're not young anymore, we're older. Um, so we just assumed we would just go into the family business. So it, it was a different time back then. It was a different time back then, how so? Just the emphasis on college? Um, the ability to pay for it? I would probably say both. You know, my parents had six kids. Couldn't afford to go to college, send their kids to college. So we just, they had their business, and so we all came to work for mom and dad. And it's been successful. Are your kids headed to college? My kids are, yes. They're not at college age yet, but that's their goal. I'm going to push them into that. I was going to say, it sounds like mom has an opinion on this. Yeah. That's my daughter right there. This is my daughter, Isabella. I wonder what people's reactions are when they find out your family owns this place. I'm very surprised. They always tell me, oh, my dad loves that place. Is it a bit like being a part of royalty in Colorado Springs? Yes. <laughs> Everyone knows who we are. And everyone's always talking to my mom in the store, wherever we go. And it's, it's nice, but it's also kind of annoying because they're like celebrities. And we're at dinner, and they end up talking to a customer for three hours. You know, so... <laughs> What should I order? Ah, uh, being in chicharrone, that's, um, you'll love that. It's awesome. That's my favorite. I love it. So chicharrone, like the pork skins. Yes, but it's not like the, the dry stuff you get in bags at stores. It's different. We fry ours here. They're homemade. That's what I want. And they're amazing. You'll love it. I'm telling you, you will love that. Alexandra, I have to share this burrito with you. You're the one who turned me on to it. I know. I'm so excited for you to try it. This is a massive burrito, and it's swimming in green chili. Swimming. All right, give me that fork. Boom. Thank you. Oh, I think I got some crunch here. Hold on. Oh, it's so nice to have the beans, and then that little bit, what did she call it, succulents. And the green chili is not super spicy, but the heat kind of hits you in the back of the throat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I miss this. And that red rice, yum. Oh, the rice is so good. El Taco Rey in Colorado Springs has been serving up tamales, pork green chili, and other foods since 1976. I spoke with Judy Allen, the daughter's, uh, the daughter, that is, of the owners, Eddie and Rosemary Aguilar, in March of 2020. That was just before lockdown Rosemary died this past September. The restaurant tried to sustain on carryout orders, but this week, after 45 years, the family announced El Taco Rey is closed for good. We read together in a series called Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. And not only do we read together, we then meet the author. Our latest pick is a novel, a historical mystery called All That Is Secret. A young black professor learns her father has been murdered in 1920s Denver, and the Ku Klux Klan may be responsible. Faith and family drive her despite the risks to her own life. So pick up All That Is Secret. The author, Patricia Raybon, will join us for a virtual event the evening of February 8th. 
You'll be able to ask her questions. And the tickets are free at CPR.org slash turn the page. That's CPR.org slash turn the page. Hope to see you February 8th. Betty White would have turned 100 on Monday. She died New Year's Eve. White was a television mainstay, including, of course, as a golden girl. She was the last surviving member of that cast. CPR's Vic Vela reflects on the influence White and the show had on him and on so many of us. When Betty White died, she left behind a legacy of laughter for many Americans, including members of the LGBTQ community, many of whom cherished the Golden Girls. That includes yours truly. And for me, there's one episode that still stands out, one that's centered around an issue that's very personal to me. When the Golden Girls would talk about issues important to the gay community, they often would do so with typical hilarity, like when Dorothy tells Blanche that a friend of hers is a lesbian. I mean, I've never known any personally, but isn't Danny Thomas one? (laughs) Not Lebanese, Blanche. It's moments like these that have long endeared gay audiences to the Golden Girls. Debuting in 1985, It was a show that was way ahead of its time when it came to LGBTQ representation on television, so much so that gay bars would often host Golden Girls watch parties. There was one episode that stood out to me when I was a young gay boy in 1990. It was about AIDS, one that the late, great Betty White, who played the lovable Rose Nyland, handled with beautiful honesty. In the episode, Rose gets a letter from a hospital. St. Luke's Hospital wants me to come in for some kind of test. That's why I had my gallbladder out six years ago. Can I see it, Rose? They throw organs out after surgery. (laughs) The letter states that the blood Rose received during a transfusion may have contained HIV antibodies. Wait a minute. You're talking about AIDS. Oh, well, this has to be some kind of mistake. Don't panic. There's just a possibility. This is a precaution. To better understand why Rose was so upset, Remember that in 1990, an HIV diagnosis was often a death sentence. The AIDS epidemic devastated gay communities. There was tremendous fear around AIDS at that time. Many people died alone in hospital beds because their families had abandoned them over the stigma of AIDS. So Rose gets tested for HIV, and the next 72 hours are torture while she waits for the results. That anxiety Rose was feeling is something I know a lot about. I'm HIV positive. It's something I've been open about for a long time. I'll never forget that day in 2006 when everything changed for me. Being gay and a heavy drug user at the time, I was at high risk of contracting the virus. And I was very sick when I got the results. Doctors told me that if I didn't start taking medications right away, I would develop AIDS. And I beat myself up because I thought I had failed morally, that because of my own debauchery, I somehow deserved this outcome. But leave it to the Golden Girls to set me straight, like when Blanche scolds Rose over having the same negative thoughts I had. AIDS is not a bad person's disease, Rose. It is not God punishing people for their sins. You're right, Blanche. Well, you're damn straight I'm right. More than 30 years after this episode aired, 
the tools we use to fight HIV and AIDS have come a long way. Rose tested negative, but for those who don't, medications can now suppress the virus to the point where it's undetectable in your blood, meaning the virus is not hurting you and you can't transmit it. I've been undetectable for 15 years now, and I'm grateful. But many still suffer, and people living with HIV or AIDS have a significantly higher rate of suicide. So the stigma remains. Now, now, Rose, take it easy. Why does everyone keep saying that? I might have AIDS, and it scares the hell out of me. Looking back on this episode, it's honesty at a time when society couldn't handle the truth around HIV still resonates today. And in typical Golden Girls fashion, they made some hard truths easier to swallow with a little laughter. Like when Rose asks Blanche how she handled getting tested for the virus. How did you make it through? Just kept it to myself and acted like a real bitch, everybody else. <laughs> no wonder we never knew. On behalf of millions of gay men affected by HIV, thank you, Betty White. We all miss you. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. Thank you for being a friend. Traveling down the road and back again. Your heart is true. Thanks for spending time with us today, and thanks to the cast of Colorado Matters. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Megan for Lee. You're with CPR News and KRCC.